Hello, everyone, and welcome to the March 8th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Fols, an attorney with the Floyd Skarin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. Following the implementation of the Cal-OSHA COVID-19 Emergency Temporary Standards, also known as ETS, last November, several employers and trade associations filed a lawsuit in San Francisco Superior Court hoping to limit the effect of these rules. The lawsuit, National Retail Federation versus the California Department of Industrial Relations, was the first one filed seeking to prevent the agency from enforcing the new COVID standards. Then, the Western Growers Association filed a related case in Los Angeles Superior Court. In an effort to avoid duplicative and inconsistent rulings, the Western Growers Association lawsuit was transferred to San Francisco, and now the two cases are being heard together. The lawsuits allege that the COVID standards were improper for several reasons, including that Cal-OSHA exceeded the scope of its authority by attempting to regulate wages and paid leave, and arbitrarily and capriciously deprived the plaintiffs of property without just compensation, or due process, particularly with respect to the COVID-19 testing and mandatory periods of paid exclusion from work. On January 28, the Superior Court judge heard oral arguments on the motions for a preliminary injunction in both cases. Attorneys for the National Retail Federation claimed that two new requirements, mandatory testing, testing and paid leave for exposed employees exceeded the agency's authority, and that freeing employers from those two requirements would not lead to an increased COVID-19 case in workplaces. Lawyers for the Western Growers Association asked the court to also block provisions regarding employee-provided housing and transportation. They say the regulations which dictate things like the distance between beds and the number of people allowed on a bus border on logistical absurdity when applied to the agricultural industry. And he asserted that the labor shortage in that industry would be exacerbated by these rules. After submission, the Superior Court judge denied the request for a preliminary injunction. His ruling said that Kalosha properly found that the COVID-19 pandemic constitutes an emergency and that prior guidance was not sufficient to address the risk of occupational spread. He also dismissed the argument that Kalosha lacked the authority to enforce the new standards and held that if he granted the injunction, numerous workers in California would suffer severe and irreparable harm. The Court of Appeal ruled that an employer's vendor has no duty to protect an injured worker who suffered an injury as a result of equipment not properly maintained by this vendor. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Piankowski v. Viola ES Industrial Services, Incorporated. Robert Piankowski, while he was employed by Chevron, was seriously injured at the company's El Segundo refinery when he was splashed with superheated materials. Piankowski received workers' compensation benefits for the injuries he sustained. 
He claims he was injured because a pipe that would normally have drained those materials in a different manner was plugged. Chevron had a services agreement with an outside vendor, Viola Environmental Services, to hydroblast these pipes as directed by Chevron's direction. A, full, a few days prior to the accident, Chevron requested that Veolia unplug the drain line, but at the time of the accident, Veolia had not yet reported to unplug the line. The injured worker filed a civil negligence lawsuit against Veolia, alleging the company owed him a duty as a third-party beneficiary of the services agreement to timely respond to a request from Chevron to clean the drain pipe at issue, and that Veolia's failure to clean the pipe caused the condition that led to his injury. The trial court granted Veolia's motion for summary judgment, finding that the injured worker could not establish that Veolia owed him a legal duty of care. The plaintiff appealed the decision, but the Court of Appeal affirmed the judgment of the trial court. It said that a distinction is drawn between claims of liability based on misfeasance and those based upon nonfeasance in considering whether a party has a legal duty in a particular factual situation. Misfeasance exists when the defendant is responsible for making the plaintiff's position worse, such as when the defendant has created the risk of harm. Liability for misfeasance is based on the general duty of ordinary care to prevent others from being injured by someone's conduct. Conversely, nonfeasance is found when the defendant has failed to aid a plaintiff through beneficial intervention. Liability for nonfeasance is limited to situations in which there is a special relationship that creates this duty to act. The basic idea is often referred to as the no-duty-to-aid rule, which remains a fundamental and long-standing rule of tort law. As a rule, one has no duty to come to the aid of another. A person who has not created a peril is not liable in tort merely for failure to take affirmative action to assist or protect another unless there is some relationship between them that gives rise to a duty to actually act. The services agreement in this case was not intended to benefit Chevron's employees, nor was it focused on providing a safe place to work for any of them. Rather, Veolia's services were intended to benefit Chevron by keeping its refineries and equipment operating smoothly. And now our crime report. 54-year-old Kia Lohr, who lives in Merced, was arraigned on four counts of insurance fraud, after investigation discovered that she allegedly lied about the extent of prior injuries in her current workers' compensation claim. Laura was a former nutrition assistant at the Merced Community Action Agency. She injured her low back while lifting a cooler at a company picnic in 2018. Laura denied any prior injuries to her lower back when completing paperwork, and, while talking with the workers' compensation insurance carrier and the qualified medical examiner. Later, investigators found that Lore had indeed submitted multiple motor vehicle accident claims between 1999 and 2016, 
where she said she suffered injuries to her back. Also, she filed a workers' compensation claim in 2008 reporting a back injury. Laura's misrepresentations about the extent of her prior injuries could have resulted in her being paid nearly $7,000 for permanent disability that was not caused by the current accident. Laura was arraigned at the Merced County Superior Court, and this case is being prosecuted by the Merced County District Attorney's Office. A Hawthorne, California-based physician has settled allegations that he violated the False Claims Act by receiving kickbacks and other improper payments in exchange for referring patients to the Memorial Hospital of Gardena. Dr. Ashok Kumar paid more than $215,000 this March to settle the allegations brought against him in a whistleblower lawsuit that claimed the Memorial Hospital of Gardena provided compensation to Dr. Kumar, whom they hired as its medical director, to incentivize him to refer patients to their hospital. The lawsuit alleged that Kumar violated the federal anti-kickback statute, as well as the physician's self-referral law. The anti-kickback statute imposes civil liability on those who willingly offer, solicit, receive, or pay any sort of compensation in exchange for the referral of services provided by a federal health care program, including Medicare. The physician self-referral law, commonly known as the Stark Law, bans doctors from referring patients to receive designated health care services payable by Medicare or Medicaid from entities with which the doctor or an immediate family member has a financial relationship. The settlement resolves allegations originally brought in a lawsuit by Dr. Joshua Luke, the former chief executive officer of Memorial Hospital of Gardena, against Dr. Kumar and other defendants under the whistleblower provisions of both the federal and California acts. Both statutes permit private parties to sue on behalf of the state and federal governments for false claims for government funds and to receive a share of any recovery. Dr. Luke will receive nearly $43,000 from this federal government settlement as his share of the recovery. His allegations against the other defendants were resolved back in 2018 when they agreed to pay the federal government an $8.1 million settlement. The allegations brought on behalf of the state of California have been resolved pursuant to a separate agreement. A federal grand jury returned an indictment charging two defendants in a scheme that targeted California Employment Development Department unemployment insurance benefits that were intended for Californians hit hardest by the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic shutdown. The three-count indictment charges 51-year-old Jason Virts, who lives in Fresno, and 45-year-old Elena Powers, an inmate at the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, with one count of conspiracy to commit mail fraud and two counts of aggravated identity theft. Vertz and Powers submitted several fraudulent unemployment insurance claims in Elena Powers's and other Central California Women's Facility inmates' names to the EDD. Recorded jail calls and emails showed that Powers and other inmates provided names, 
dates of birth, and social security numbers for inmates at the Central California Women's Facility to VERTS to then submit the fraudulent claims. The unemployment benefits were then loaded onto a debit card by the EDD that were mailed to the addresses the defendants provided. The underlying applications for the claims stated that the inmates had worked within the prescribed period of time as maids, cleaners, fabrication welders, and other occupations, and that they were available to work, which was not true because they were incarcerated. The claims would have been denied if accurate answers had been given. EDD in the United States have suffered an actual loss of over $103,000 as a result of this fraud. If convicted of the conspiracy to commit mail fraud, Burtz and Powers each face a maximum statutory penalty of 20 years in prison and a fine of up to a quarter million dollars. If convicted of the aggravated identity theft charge, they face a mandatory two-year sentence consecutive to any other sentence. And in regulatory news, a new study and commentary published in Health Services Research says that Medicare reimbursement policies for outpatient services have encouraged more physicians to integrate with hospitals. That's in part because Medicare reimbursement for physician services, on average, would have been $114,000 higher per physician per year for the ones who were integrated with a hospital instead of being in private practice. For primary care alone, reimbursement would have been $63,000 higher per physician per year for those who were integrated with the hospital. For medical specialties, the average reimbursement difference was $178,000, and for surgical specialties, it was $150,000 per year. The reimbursement difference per specialty ranged from $360,000 for urology to $15,000 for psychiatry. A healthcare technology consultant who commented on the study said that these numbers are astonishing. And he said that the incentives and waste here are just incredible, as in incredibly destructive. Workers' compensation care pays 120% of the Medicare rates, and other commercial payers pay 200 to 400% markups over Medicare in hospital outpatient departments. The researchers also found a modest association between a higher payment differential and the probability of integration with a hospital. The effect was larger among primary care physicians and medical specialists, but not statistically significant among surgeons. And, while integration was associated with higher prices, current evidence suggests a limited association with an improvement in quality. As a result, the commentators said they were not crazy about encouraging any more of it. There are several reasons the study has garnered attention. The professor of healthcare policy at Harvard Medical School and the author of the study's corresponding commentary said there's an enormous amount of concern about healthcare prices in the country, and much of the concern about high prices is because of consolidation like this. 
Cal OSHA has cited more employers for not protecting workers from COVID-19 following inspections in various industries throughout the state. Violations were identified in industries including construction, garment, correctional institutions, and the medical profession. Cal OSHA opened the inspections after learning of COVID-19 fatalities and illnesses and after receiving complaints. An inspection at the Los Angeles Apparel Factory occurred after reports of an outbreak, including six employees who died from COVID-19 complications. Cal OSHA determined that Los Angeles Apparel intentionally did not report the COVID-19 fatalities and cited the employer for several other violations. One of the serious violations was failure to evaluate COVID-19 hazards, such as the lack of physical distancing or barriers to separate employees operating sewing machines. Another serious violation was the lack of employee training on preventing COVID-19 infection in the workplace. An inspection was opened at the California Prison Industry Authority in Vacaville after the employer reported the serious illness of an employee hospitalized for COVID-19 complications, and another employee tested positive for the virus. Kalosha cited the prison authority for three serious violations after finding deficiencies in its aerosol transmissible disease and respiratory protection programs. Also cited for two COVID-19 related serious violations was Integrated Pain Management Medical Group, a San Leandro-based medical practice. Kalosha opened an accident inspection following a report of an employee who was hospitalized for COVID-19 complications. The employer was cited for failing to implement an effective employee COVID-19 screening procedure and for deficiencies in its respiratory protection program. The Roseville-based framing contractor, Erickson Framing LLC, was also cited following two COVID-19 complaint-based inspections at work sites in Vacaville and Fairfield. At the Vacaville site, the Calosha inspector found that the employer was not enforcing the use of face coverings or physical distancing between employees. In a subsequent inspection, a month later, the inspector again found the same hazards. Calosha cited the employer for a serious violation in each instance for the employer's failure to effectively establish, implement, and maintain procedures. The DEA released the 2020 National Drug Threat Assessment, its annual publication outlining the threats posed to the United States by domestic and international drug trafficking and the abuse of illicit drugs. Some progress has been made in reducing the smuggling of fentanyl from China following the DEA's 2018 emergency scheduling action of fentanyl-related substances and China's enactment of fentanyl class controls in May of 2019. Nonetheless, Mexican drug trafficking organizations have increased production, causing more fentanyl to flow across our border. The opioid threat remains at epidemic levels, affecting large proportions of the country. Meanwhile, the stimulant threat, including methamphetamine and cocaine, is worsening both in volume and reach, 
with traffickers selling increasing amounts outside of traditional markets. According to the CDC, more than 83,000 people lost their lives to drug-related overdose in the 12-month period ending in July of 2020. This is a significant increase from 2019, when more than 70,000 people died of overdoses. Illicit fentanyl is one of the primary drugs fueling the epidemic of overdose deaths in the United States. While heroin and prescription opioids remain significant challenges to public health and law enforcement. The report highlighted some California-specific problems in 2019. In that year, California had more fentanyl seized than any other state. California, Ohio, and Texas reported the highest dollar amounts in bulk cash seizures for a combined total of more than $131 million. Border restrictions between the United States and Mexico brought on due to the pandemic have increased the difficulty of transporting loads of bulk currency from the United States across the border into Mexico. As a result, large amounts of U.S. currency are being held along the U.S. side awaiting transport into Mexico. California had the second greatest amount of cocaine seized in 2019 due to the proximity of the southwest border and high-traffic international airports and seaports. The DEA Field Division seized nearly 7,000 kilograms of heroin in 2019, a 30% increase from 2018, with the largest amounts of heroin seized in Texas, California, Arizona, and New York. California, Texas, and Arizona are all major entry points for heroin sourced from Mexico and also serve as transshipment points for the onward movement of heroin to domestic markets throughout the United States. California leads the U.S. in methamphetamine conversion labs. Methamphetamine conversion labs are used to convert powder methamphetamine into crystal methamphetamine or to recrystallize methamphetamine in solution back into crystal meth. In 2019, 26% of illicit fentanyl tablets contained a potential lethal dose of fentanyl, which increased from only 14% and 10% the two prior years. Mexican cartels are increasingly responsible for producing and supplying fentanyl to the U.S. market. China remains a key source of supply for the precursor chemicals that Mexican cartels use to produce the large amounts of fentanyl they are smuggling into the U.S. The National Association of Insurance Commissioners released market share data on life, fraternal, and property casualty insurers. The top six carriers have more than a third of the market share and here are the top six. Travelers Group, written premium nearly $4 billion as a market share of 8.91%. Number two, Hartford Fire and Casualty Group, written premium of nearly $3 billion, has a market share of 7.13%. Number three, Zurich Insurance Group, with written premium of $2.5 billion, has a market share of 5.95%. Number four, Chubb. Limited Group, market share is 5.47. 
Number five, Amtrust Financial Services Group with a market share of 4.52. And finally, number six, Berkshire Hathaway Group with a market share of 3.99%. Other highlights from the report include that with nearly 70% of property casualty insurance companies reporting to date, direct written premiums for all lines of business are $521 billion. The top 10 property casualty companies reporting to date have a cumulative market share of 50.04%. The reports reflect data filed by insurers as of March 1 and will be refreshed daily through March 5 and then each Monday throughout March. The full 2020 market share reports will be available this summer and will contain more in-depth information. And in medical news, researchers from Yale University and from Japan report in the Journal of Clinical Neurology and Neurosurgery that intravenous injection of bone marrow-derived stem cells in patients with spinal cord injuries led to a significant improvement in their motor function. These patients had sustained non-penetrating spinal cord injuries, in many cases from falls or minor trauma several weeks prior to implantation of the stem cells. Their symptoms involved loss of motor function and coordination, sensory loss, as well as bowel and bladder dysfunction. The stem cells were prepared from the patient's own bone marrow by way of a culture protocol that took a few weeks in a specialized cell processing center. The cells were then injected intravenously in this series with each patient serving as their own control. Results were not blinded, and there were no placebo controls. For more than half of the patients, substantial improvements in key functions, such as ability to walk or to use their hands, were observed within weeks of the stem cell injection, and no substantial side effects were reported. Researchers stress that additional studies will be needed to confirm these results of a preliminary unblinded trial. They also stress that this could take years, but despite the challenges, they remain very optimistic. That's because there have been similar results with stem cells in patients with stroke, and this increases confidence that this approach may be clinically useful. The idea that we may be able to restore function after injury to the brain and spinal cord using the patient's own stem cells has intrigued scientists for years. And now the researchers say we have a hint that in humans it may be possible. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember... You can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Manuki, and Langabin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news. Thank you.